um, I took a company and we carved it out. It was about $450 million of revenue and prepared a roadshow, um, brought the people along, hired new people, you know, did all the things associated with taking a company public and ended up um, ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange and taking the company public. I became uh, chairman, CEO, and president of the company. And um, it was a fantastic experience. Um, I was in over my head, really didn't know it at the time, but uh, made a lot of really silly mistakes. But then I made some serious mistakes. And we got into trouble with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I ended up understanding, you know, what I had done and what my role had been as CEO. And so I pled guilty uh, to a, uh, a violation of, of securities uh, and exchange commission rules. And um, I was sentenced to four years. In a, wow. in a world of incompetent bosses, micromanagers, and petty tyrants, one management professor claims that he can help you become the kind of leader that you would want to follow. You are listening to The Leadersmith. Now, here is your host, Darren Gertis. So um, thanks very much for agreeing to talk. I mean, I don't know if this is really going to lead into anything, but I thought, you know, given the things I see you write, the things I read that you write and your areas of interest and all, I thought it would be at least good to, at a minimum, uh, get to know each other. And sure. um, um, I don't know how much you know about me. But uh, I thought maybe I could spend just a few minutes giving sure. you some background and then we can talk to see if there's something that you believe would be worth exploring. So um, I've been around for quite a while. Uh, um, you know, I'm 68. I'll be 69 end of this month. And uh, I, I've had a kind of a varied career. Uh, came to this country in 1958 from Cuba, emigrated from Cuba and was educated in this country. And ended up in the corporate world. Um, and I had the um, unique experience of uh, joining a company as chief information officer back in the um, late 90s. And th that had been my career path the whole time, had been in the technology realm. And, uh, and so I joined this company that was, uh, the name of the company was Cabletron. It was a competitor of Cisco. It was a billion dollar company and I was the chief information officer, their first ever chief information officer. And shortly after I joined, the chairman and CEO decided to split the company off into four pieces, four subsidiaries, and eventually to spin them off as, as um, separate companies. And so um, he retired and turned over the helm to a guy that had come in uh, on an acquisition that he had made. And I thought, you know, I'm going to have to move on because I, don't, I really didn't get along with the guy. Make a long story short, he actually tapped me on the shoulder and said, listen, I think you should take the largest chunk of these four subsidiaries and become president of the subsidiary and then work to spin it off. So I, I did uh, without really understanding what I was doing. Um, I took a company and we carved it out. It was about $450 million of revenue and prepared a roadshow, um, brought the people along, hired new people, 
you know, did all the things associated with taking a company public and ended up um, ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange and taking the company public. I became uh, chairman, CEO and president of the company. And um, it was a fantastic experience. Um, I was in over my head, really didn't know it at the time, but uh, made a lot of really silly mistakes. But then I made some serious mistakes and we got into trouble with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I ended up understanding, you know, what I had done and what my role had been as CEO. And so I pled guilty uh, to a, uh, a violation of, of securities uh, and exchange commission rules. And um, I was sentenced to four years in a wow. final prison. So I, I served um, about three and a half years. I got into a special program and uh, ended up leaving prison. I, I en entered prison January 4th, 2008, ended up leaving prison in late 2010. And uh, learned a lot <laughs> in prison. Obviously, I wish I had uh, learned those lessons a different way. However, one of the things I learned that, uh, and you know, some of these things are obvious, right? Uh, decisions, choices have consequences. But what I what I had failed to understand, and I interviewed, must have been hundreds of fellow inmates, um, some of them CFOs, CEOs, uh, attorneys, doctors. I mean, I spent a lot of time talking to a guy who had been the CEO of Rite Aid Pharmacy and who had ended up in prison as well. So and your interviews were all prison interviews? Yeah, these were all prison okay. interviews. Well, that's, yeah. a, that's a very different base uh, than, than most people get to interview. Like as a pro professor, that's not the crowd that I'm usually talking to when I do interviews. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, the interesting thing is that and by the way, I also interviewed a lot of just what you might call common, ordinary criminals um, to a man. I mean, this was all men in, in, in the prison with me because they don't mix the population. Sure. But to a man, uh, they all made bad decisions. And the, the thing about it is that they really didn't understand when they were making the decisions that you really should not be making decisions like that without some kind of framework or process by which to understand what it is you're deciding and what the ramifications are. I mean, you might think about, well, this is a potentially bad decision, but in my case, what I had failed to do is to work the outcome all the way through to the end and then to decide, okay, you know, what, what is the right decision here? So I spent time, and I speak on this now, by the way. So before before you go on, let me yeah. let me uh, have you expand a little bit on that. So yeah, you were yeah. just you were making decisions from the gut. You didn't get counsel. You didn't have legal advice. What what was it that was the the issue? It was pretty much all of the above. Now I, I did have legal counsel. I did have people on staff. I had a, a general counsel. I had a CFO. I tried to surround myself with people, but Unfortunately, <clears throat> I surrounded myself with, with people that weren't giving good advice as well. Now, the fault was entirely mine. I, I had the ability to always say no. And, but, but the thing that I did not base decisions on is what I call a framework by which to make them and a set of core values, right? I, it's my belief that 
when you establish a set of um, really sound core values as a business person, as a as a leader, mm-hmm. and even personally, or even with respect to your family, those core values are what you stand in, and those core values are the way you live your life. So when a decision comes at you, you use those core values in making the decisions. I'll give you a quick example. If one of your core values is I want to be true to the environment and be a good steward, and and um, you know we want to be a green company or we want to be respectful of the resources that we've been given to take care of, and then here comes a deal with a company that you know dumps toxic chemicals or spews stuff into the atmosphere or just isn't a good steward. If one of your core values is to be a steward of the environment and and to respect the environment, that's not a deal you want to get into because it's going to violate your core value. Same thing with, let's say, integrity is is a, a core value. Lots of companies have core values, by the way. Many of them treat them like shelfware or PowerPoint presentations. Mm-hmm. But let's say integrity is is a core value. Then you know you can't have any tolerance for any violation of of integrity. And so when you when you make decisions, you, you run them against these core values and, and you make sure that they're congruent with the core values. And then you go through the normal return on investment. Is it the right strategy? Sure. That kind of stuff. But the beginning is the core values sure. and the fact that, you know, you so I found myself straying into gray areas, which is a killer in business. I mean, there's a lot of examples of this. You you read the news and you've seen the people going all the way back to people like uh, Dennis Koslowski of Tyco and the, uh, the Adelphia scandal and the MCI scandal and, and even, you know, people like Martha Stewart and Bernie Madoff and it just goes on and on and on. The interesting thing is that this doesn't stop. It doesn't act as a deterrent. When people go to jail, it doesn't act as a deterrent. And smart people continue to get in trouble. And I believe they do that is because they don't have a base of core values on which to make the decisions. Let me ask about those core values. So the core values, if you do it right, it should create. It should make, help you make the decision predetermined, make the decision for you, right? right. Right. I mean, it should, like, no, I'm not going to do X because I'm, my values are Y. Now, uh, is the ranking of the core values important to your mind or is it just having these five values? Because I don't think so. I don't think I don't think that it's a matter of, well, this is number five, so I can be lenient there. You know, I, I, I think it's a matter of, hey, this is what I stand for. And and by the way, part of this is communicating it and showing the organization or your family, or personally, that you walk the talk. This, right, is okay. not, this is not just BS. It's for real. Like if, if we believe customers and the customer relationship is important to us, then we better walk that talk. If we believe our employees are our greatest asset, and that's one of our core values, we better walk the talk. You know, it's interesting. Boeing has a value of quality and they they violated that over and over. How? What kind of credibility do you have? Yeah. So, uh, and that's a related question. I mean, so uh, if it's just on the wall, it doesn't do anything. I mean, you can write anything that you want, put it up on the wall, put it on every wall on every in every building, and it doesn't. It still doesn't work. It, it has to be something that you actually believe and that you're willing to be held 
accountable to. So the accountability of the core value seems to be half the battle, unless I'm huge, huge, huge. And, and not only that, I believe that as part of the framework, you have to enable, you have to institutionalize this decision-making process using core values into day-to-day living. Right. So for example, all of your business processes, your recruiting process, your hiring and orientation process, your marketing processes, your sales processes, your financial processes, your logistics processes, your procurement processes. I mean, if, if you live like this, then guess what? Your RFP process, when you put stuff out to have potential suppliers propose on it, has got to be rock solid based on those core values. Your financial processes. So for example, you know how many companies fudge numbers and play games and stray into that gray area and they take down reserves or reduce the reserves in order to show a profitable quarter and, and, you know, things like that, that are really, I mean, part of what got us in trouble was the games we were playing with uh, deals. Uh, we, you know, the, the, the justice department ended up referring to them as three corner deals. Um, you're you're going to be a systems integrator that resells my product and I end up investing in you. But you take the money that I give you and you end up, I, I tell you to use the money I give you to buy product from one of my distributors. And so as long as if I disclose it, it's it's OK. It's it's perfectly a perfectly good deal. But if I don't disclose that I've got a relationship with you and with the distributor and that you're using my money to buy product from the distributor, you know, that that's not the right way to do business. So, you know, I believe you got to ingrain this instant. I call it institutionalize it in all of your business processes across the board. You know, so whether it's how you purchase stuff, whether it's the deals you go into your sales process, your marketing materials, yeah. you know, uh, disparaging your competitors. That, that is not ethical. If one of your business, pro- uh, one of your core values is to be honest and have integrity in what you say in the marketplace and to stand behind your, your product and, you know, things like that. So, you know, product recalls, perfect example of companies that try and hide or avoid product recalls. And all of a sudden they, you find all this internal documentation and memorandums about a product that was really unsafe, you know, and, and there's, there's no integrity in that kind of environment. And the interesting thing is, guess who you end up attracting to come work for you. That's right. That's right. And it works either way. I mean, if you're really solid on doing X, then people who are really solid on doing X opt in. And if you're really not, and you're all about just shady money, whatever, you attract the shady money, whatever people. That's that's right. Yeah. And then guess what? You have no one really kind of raising their hand and saying, you know, this doesn't smell right. And hey, before we enter into this deal, we ought to talk about the fact that this company is notorious for doing this kind of thing in the marketplace. And then finally, the last thing you, you talked about it just a few minutes ago. Who do you surround yourself with? I, I call it, I borrowed the phrase from a guy, Jim Rohn, who I respected and followed very much. Love that. Uh, he calls it voices of value. Right? Who do you surround yourself that you are going to allow to whisper in your ear that is a voice of value? So 
you, you need to have this in place before you start making decisions, because by the time decisions are in front of you to be made, it's too late if you don't have it established. So the voices of value are people either from academia, from the business world, from your social circles, from, you know, who, whoever were, that you have vetted and that you have been able to convince that you want to rely on them to help you with the more complex decisions. Mm -hmm. I mean, the day-to-day -day stuff you do and you make, and as long as you're basing it on solid principle, you're good. But, but some of these complex decisions, and, you know, I've talked to CFOs that say, you know, the accounting rules in some cases are vague. And I said, so how do you, how do you work around that? And how do you figure out that you're doing the right thing? He goes, you do the best you can by surrounding yourself with people who know and who live their lives the way that you want to live your life mm -hmm. and who have made solid decisions. You know, can you imagine some of these companies that meet Wall Street expectations or beat it by a penny every single quarter? General Electric met and exceeded Wall Street expectations for, I don't know, 40, 48 quarters, whatever it was during the Jack Welch era. And then afterwards, whoever his successor was, I forget the guy's I name. Oh, Imble. Jeff Immel. Jeff yeah. Immel. Yeah. And, and so the, doesn't anybody wonder, scratch their head and go, oh, what's going on here? You know, yeah, as long as the money. So here's the thing. As long as it works, people are generally safe, even if they know that something shady or odd is going on. But as soon as it doesn't work, that shadiness gets exposed in a heartbeat. Exactly. So, uh, you, you know, even if you look like you're safe, if you're doing that kind of thing, you are definitely not safe. Um, yeah. 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 That's that's a very dangerous place to be. It's a slippery slope. Yep. And once you're on it, 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 it's all over. And so I found myself in that situation. And, and you know, I, I was a stock option millionaire. I, I lived in a mansion. I had it all. I had the world by the tail. I traveled all over the world. I had 2,000 people working for me. A, a huge patent portfolio of technology patents. Very talented engineers. Products that were respected worldwide. Uh, we weren't as big as Cisco. You know, Cisco was a multi-billion dollar company. We were, we got to be uh, a half a billion dollar company in, in revenue. I was rubbing shoulders with famous people. Yoko Ono was on my speed dial. You know, I, I, wow. ended, I, 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 you know, I had friends in, in celebrities and, but that got to my head and my inexperience and my lack of having a framework and having a solid base of core values is what did me in. Yeah. And so I, that, that's ahead. what I was about to ask is what could, now in hindsight, what could have prevented it? So if you had the core values, if you had accountability that was holding you to that, because just having the core values, we know is not enough. Right. Right. You need. So, so, and one of the things that I find really interesting is I've, and I've said this in class, I've never seen a great leader that I trust that eschews uh, accountability. If they if they're like, no, no, I don't need your accountability. I don't need those constraints. It's just going to hold me back. That makes me nervous like nothing I've ever seen before. I mean, it yeah. just it, right. Great leaders welcome it because they know that, you know, they can't see what they can't see. Right. Well, here, here's what happened. Right. It got to the point where I had so much pressure on me that I accept I accepted the pressure to perform, to do things and to take the shortcuts. And, and so, so what happened there? 
Well, typically what happens is you start listening to the people who are giving you advice to take the shortcuts because you need to make the numbers this quarter. You need to make the numbers. Instead of standing up and saying, we're not going to commit any unnatural acts. We're not going to violate our core principles. And if we're having a bad quarter because the marketplace is tough, so be it. And if the stock gets pummeled as a result, so be it. I fired a guy who told me, by the way, Henry, tomorrow, people call me Henry. He says, tomorrow the sun's going to shine and we're going to have a next quarter after this one and a quarter following that one. And as long as we stay true to the course, we will eventually get rewarded for our efforts. Don't rob tomorrow to make today. Don't, you know, we would be trying to bring deals in by cutting prices, which is not illegal, but, you know, we would be taking all kinds of shortcuts. We would be playing games and he was not a game player. And I would, I had a lot of pressure to fire him. I ended up firing. He's still my friend to today, you know, this day. But, but the bottom line is if I had had the core values and I had institutionalized them into the day-to-day decision-making framework of the company, so that it's not just shelfware, it's not laminated cards that people have in their wallets. It's not posters. It's real. Yeah. And, and and if you find a violation, one of the things you can't do is tolerate the violation, you know, because people have to know sure. that they have has teeth, you know. And and if I had surrounded myself with better people, not just inside the company, I'm talking about outside the company as well, you know, that were a handful of folks that I had vetted and were truly competent and truly lived their lives and their whole careers by core values and principles, then obviously there's no guarantee in life, but I think I would have been in a much better position to do what needed to be done, to do the right things for the right reasons. You know? So, so when I'm, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking about this. So so, uh, every institution has different values, right? Um, and, you know, it, it's not a one size fits all. I mean, it, it has to it has to be appropriate for the organization in its cultural context in the market. Right. So I'm thinking of CSU. I teach at Charleston Southern. Uh, we have epic values. This is kind of a newer thing with the, our, our uh, new president. He's been here for about three years. He's a retired two star general. And apparently they don't just give out those stars. Um, it's I mean, the guy's got it together. Right. So he came in and he started focusing on and it is described epic. So extra mile service, a passion for student success, innovation across the institution and in Christian community. We're, we're a Baptist school. OK, so um, those things. Now, you have to then say extra mile service. That's one of your core values. And you have to appraise it every time you see it. And you have to make sure that when you aren't doing that, that somehow you're going, no, 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 you can't not do that. We have to be doing this or or that just becomes a statement on the wall and it exactly. doesn't work. Exactly. So tell me about how you embed those core values within the okay. organization. Right. So this is the tough part, right? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. The, the tough part is, first of all, um, if you're starting a new organization, then you have kind of a greenfield. And so it's a lot easier. But if you're taking over an organization, the first thing you have to do is get everybody on the same level set, if you will, in terms of what these things are, Mm -hmm. what these things mean. So you're talking about 
um, a lot of orientation, a lot of training, a lot of grassroots. People have to buy into it and they have to buy into it hook, line and sinker. I mean, this has got to be now a way of life. And so some people may not last. Some people, I can almost guarantee you in any organization where you try this, you're going to have a fallout. And so be it, because if you're really serious about it, you've got to have people that listen to your talk, watch your walk, and then follow the walk with their own walk so that it permeates throughout the entire organization. Yeah, so everything you said is right. I would back up, though, and I would say how that is created, you'll get a lot less fallout if they're part of the process of creating it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as an example, a core values exercise is not me as the leader saying, here are your six core values. Go, go get them. No, it's putting together a group, a cross section of people. You start, maybe you start with a department or maybe you start with a a, a group, representative group, respected employees, people that have met a certain criteria and you go through an exercise. And I mean, there's, there's a dozen ways to create core values. You know, there, there's, there's red light, green light sessions and there's Delphi and there's all kinds of methods by which you start bubbling these up and then you start honing in on them and honing in on them. And, and then you do a lot of communication and, and vetting and, and getting people to buy in. Because if you have buy-in, if you've had people help create this, then, as you say, you don't really need to sell it because they've been part of the creation process. And then it's a matter of educating the entire organization and making sure that department heads walk the talk, that the business processes are infused with this stuff so that people know, hey, this isn't just lip service. This is when we our our student acceptance process, right, is got to be part of this it's it's the way we examine people who apply to this college this university and the way we accept them has has got to be consistent with our core values the way we we hire professors or we promote professors the way that we do things in the community the way we go after endowments and what we do with our all of the business processes that are particular to your industry, whether it's, you know, an industrial firm or, or a university or uh, a professional services organization, whatever it is, you know, and, and, and again, it's, it's constant. This is not something you do and then you put away and you're done. This is a way of life. If you don't do it as a way of life, and this is where it gets tough because it takes a lot of work. It takes effort. It takes dedication. But I, I think the results, there's a company that publishes a, a survey or they track performance of the most ethical companies uh, and compare it to an index. And there's like a 15% overperformance for companies that are deemed to be ethical. I, I can share the yeah, that's right. That's right. And you, and you see that for uh, ethical surveys. You see that for how they treat their employees. Right. You see that in multiple ways. Uh, those that have the strongest values, those that are, do what you just said, those that treat their employees best are, are heads and ta- heads and shoulders above other companies in performance, generally yeah. speaking. And, you know, then 
when you're in that kind of organization and your head hits the pillow, you feel good. And when you wake up in the morning, you don't feel the weight of the world on your shoulders because in the back of your mind, or maybe even in the front of your mind, you know, you're doing some wrong things and it's only a matter. I mean, the worst day of my life was when two FBI agents come, came knocking on my door. Yeah, I would and, imagine. <laughs> and I knew it was over, you know. So, so did, did you realize that, you know, hey, I shouldn't be doing this? Or did you just think, eh, you know, everybody does it? Or I, I was... I was raised differently. I'm writing a book. In fact, I write every morning and, and I just finished a section that I call lessons from my father. He was actually my stepfather. Go I got to interrupt. You're sat, you, you posted. And so we got to know each other here in my leadership forum. Right. And so we were just talking about great ideas about leadership and you posted something. I don't know if it was there or somewhere else about every Saturday you write with a group of writers that wasn't that you <coughs> every morning. Every morning, okay, you write with a group of writers online. Yeah. They just they just sit there and silently write. Yep. I Tell just, me about that just, process. What's that been like? Oh, that's been fantastic. I mean, I, I was stuck at around twenty thousand words uh, uh, like a year ago, and I'm at seventy five thousand words now. So I get up every morning, and at eight a.m. Eastern, we get on Zoom. This morning, I think there must have been one hundred and sixty people on Zoom. So here we are. And we do some introductions and they, they write something that, or they read something that is supposed to be inspirational. And then 50 solid minutes of writing. Nobody says a word. And you've got these people, you think, you know, you know think they're looking at you and, and really they are because you're on camera, they're on camera. And, and it's a, it, it's a, an accountability thing. Yeah. They are your accountability partners. Right. You know, I was just going to I was just going to use that word accountability. I mean, this is the core of the problem that we were just talking about was yeah, accountability. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we, we need that. Um, I'm sorry. I interrupted with the writing. You were about to tell me about the book and your father and whatever else. Yeah. The, so he when I revisit the lessons and this is a guy who had a sixth grade education and ended up being superintendent of a pretty big shoe factory in South Florida at the time. So self-made man and brilliant in terms of leadership skills, raw leadership skills and life lessons that he was full of. And he took every opportunity from the time when I was 17 years old and I came home drunk and, and the way he handled that and the lesson he taught me without having to say a word or lift a finger, you know, and, 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 and when I revisited those lessons, I realized, Hey, it wasn't my upbringing. So I knew that I was, we were doing some wrong things. When I started on that endeavor to take the company public, I, I hired a couple of folks and I appointed a couple of people to the board that I knew from previous lives that I, I and, and I said, they're going to help me make this company different and we're going to be a different company because the company had had some shady. Uh, I mean, you know, there was a, a, a joke that the auditors KPMG would actually walk the floor of the warehouse close to midnight on the last day of the quarter to make sure that trucks weren't loaded past midnight, because that's the rule. Midnight, the day of the quarter, you can't count anything that ships as a sale at 1201. Mm -hmm. And and there were literally auditors that would walk the floor trying to make sure. And there were plenty of examples of, of trucks that would leave at 1159 full of empty boxes 
or stuff that was shipped without customers really ordering it in order to counter the just, drug. Just to pull the wool over their eyes, kind just of. To pull, yeah, j- just to make the numbers. And, and I vowed we weren't going to be that way, but I succumbed to the pressure and ended up getting into this, you know, tailspin and circular drain where it, it, it was just absolutely, I mean, I did things that I knew were wrong and I shouldn't have done. And um, I wish I had been stronger, but I wasn't. I paid the price. Guess what? There was a consequence for my actions. And I said, and, and you know, I, I got divorced. I lost touch with my children for a decade. I remarried and, and, and the lady I married stuck behind me. Uh, she was there. She she actually took me to prison when I when I self-reported, uh, turned myself in to the federal prison here in Miami. And um, I, I said to her and she agreed. I said, I've got to take accountability for this. That's the only way I'm going to be able to live with myself for the rest of my life. So, wow. So I, I'm guessing that when you started the job, you didn't think, yeah, I'm going to be shady. It was a very incremental thing. And by the time you did one thing the wrong direction, you didn't think much of it. And the second one, yeah, you didn't think much of it. Hey, this is just me after all, right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not, a, you know, a criminal or whatever, oh right? Yeah. I mean, tell me about that process. Is that about how that goes? Yeah, it is. I think it's a matter of um, it, it's it's kind of like you, you build a little a tolerance for that kind of behavior, and 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 your skin gets a little thicker, and and you got people whispering in your ear. And you know, I hired a CFO that I thought had impeccable credentials. He was he wasn't a bad guy, but um, you know, he he. I, I remember nine eleven. And he came to me after right after 9-11 and he said, hey, we can use 9-11 as a way to get rid of some of this product we have in the channel. And and I thought to myself, boy, that's really sick. That, yeah. that wow. really sounds pretty sick to me to use a situation where thousands of people have lost their lives. But he had gotten to that point yeah. in trying to make the numbers as well. Yeah. And it's always a and so. If you didn't have the pressure of the numbers, it's less likely you would have gone that way. But but when, but given that you do have that pressure and that's part of the job and you have to accept that, it's just a matter of you have to build those defenses against it or you just fall into that. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah, and it was always, well, don't talk to the auditors about that. And and uh, <clears throat> well, and, and by the way, the general counsel of, of the parent company before I spun off was – um, also a technologist. He was, he was, he had a, a degree from MIT and a law degree. So it's not like he didn't really understand the business. And, and he came from a very prestigious Northeastern law firm. Um, and, and it was like very smart people, but it's, it's not about being smart. Yeah. It's about being ethical. Yeah. So and it sounds like multiple sexy. systems failure. Like your your finance guy failure, your council failure, leadership you failed at yeah. one after another after another. Like all the circuits, you should have had circuit breakers that that didn't trip. Right. But yeah. Okay. So tell me. So this is now what you do. You speak about this, 
and uh, go to companies and tell, tell me about that process. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've had limited success, but not because it isn't a resonating topic. It's because I also have this consulting uh, agreement that I've been on for a couple of years that takes a lot of my time. So I haven't really had the ability to market this, but I'll, I'll give you an example. I must have delivered this talk maybe now oh, 25 times, including to some pretty big audiences. I did a, a call with a thousand clients uh, from a, a, one of the big accounting firms hired me to do this via Zoom because obviously because of the pandemic, there were a thousand people on that call. I, I did an, an, another one uh, for a company, a smaller company that hired me to do that for their employees. Um, I did it with another company, about a hundred and some odd people, a, a, a department uh, from a very, very large company. And it was like, they were like unbelievably blown away by the story and by the process by which you should make decisions and stuff. So I've done it a number of times, you know, I'm, you know, I've, I've been paid well for it. I know it resonates well. Yeah, and sure. um, what I'm trying to do is ramp down this consulting work so that I can ramp this up because not just to make money at it, I really feel very um, that this is a very important topic. Yeah. And, 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 you know, in today's day and age, it's just a total lack of accountability across the board. Sure. And, sure. and I think there's something philosophical in the cultural milieu that allows it much more likely now than it would just 30 years ago, 40, 50. What, I mean, right now, the culture has shifted somehow. I, I can't describe it, but this the so personalized. I got to be me. Um, uh yeah. I don't know what it is, but there's something that has shifted away from duty, virtue, honor into self-aggrandizement or self-focus or, or something that has made this message even more potent right now than what yeah. it was just a generation or two ago. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I spoke to a guy that I've known for a number of years. He's an entrepreneur, technologist. He started a bunch of companies. And, and so I was... Because part of what I do is kind of reach out to folks to talk about this and and to, you know, make sure they understand that this is what I'm doing. And if there's an, any opportunity to share the message that they think about me. And so we were talking and I, I started to sense that he wasn't buying in totally. So I I, I started exploring that with him. And, and I said, what, what what's the issue? He goes, well, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of startups. And he says, quite frankly, you cannot put these kinds of shackles on a startup company to be thinking about, you know, always doing the right thing and ethics. And you got to cut corners. You got to because everybody does it and you're not going to be successful. You're going to be left behind. And I thought to myself, wow. Yeah, you're you're putting bad into the DNA from the start. If you start. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's dangerous. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I had. You know, so that that made me think of this, like uh, John Wooden said, good values are like a magnet. They attract good people. <laughs> and if you if you start without that, then you're going to get you're going to attract what you don't want. Who's going and, and personnel is policy. Right. I mean, we know that the people are going to make those decisions. And if you start attracting them wrong. Wow. That's just that's going to go all uh, all wrong. So. Yeah. Hey, thanks for sharing your story. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, I 
I've come to respect you. I, I, I see what you do and I see what you write. And um, so I thought, let's at least get to know each other a little bit better. And then, you know, if nothing comes of it, that's fine. At least we had a great discussion. And uh, I feel like you're a kindred spirit here in terms of what we're talking about, especially with your new president and, and his position on this. So yeah. that's really refreshing because you guys are shaping and molding the future leaders you know, the, the leaders of tomorrow. And I think that's really important because we, we severely lack for really good role models, not just that know how to make money, but that know how to live life and how to conduct themselves and their companies the way that things should be. So thank you very much for the opportunity. So tell me this, uh, if anybody here is listening to this right now, how do they get a hold of you if they want you to talk to their organization or they just want to follow up with you? Sure. I, the, the, so the best way to, to do it is to just drop me a line at Enrique at Fialo.com. Um, Enrique at Fialo.com, F-I-A-L-L-O. And, uh, or they can go to www.fialo.com. And that's, that's my speaking website it's it's eventually going to be both my speaking and my coaching because i i do one-on-one coaching as well i have a number of coaching clients but that's the best way to reach me okay well again thank you for coming on the program we really appreciate it thank you darren it was a pleasure and uh all the best to you